back at Powell's Chapel Baptist Church. It really is like a second home to me and Sheila and Luke are here this morning, and so grateful to be here, and I'm, I'm very grateful to know your pastor. He is, uh, we work day in and day out with one another. We actually ride up to Nashville about a 20-mile trip in about an hour and 10 minutes in the mornings on 24, and uh, I tell you, about every other word out of his mouth during the day at work and on that way here is about you. His love for you, his desire to be here with you, desire for God to move in such powerful ways among you and to be used in this community. And he is not only just a really incredible clinician, he is an incredible man and, uh, as you know, a great pastor. So I'm really honored to stand in his, literally stand in his footsteps today to be with you. So you've been this great book of Nehemiah, one of the great construction projects of all time. After about almost 100 years, of disrepair on the wall in the, in the beloved city of Jerusalem. Uh, Nehemiah gets word that it's in disrepair, and he goes, and uh, as you've heard, in, in about 52 days, just, just shy of two months, something that had been in disrepair for almost a century was built back again. It's a story of how God worked through Nehemiah in particular and his people in general to um, restore that wall. So last chapter, uh, chapter 8, we talked uh, talk through the solemn assembly, how the people were told, go celebrate the Feast of Booths, Nehemiah said, do not grieve, do not cry, the joy of the Lord is your strength, and so go and live in the, the, the knowledge of how much he loves you, how much he loves us, how much he's for us, and celebrate who God is. And so that's the backdrop of chapter 9. I'll tell you what, how we're going to approach this today. We're going to do, do some bookends, we're going to look at the first part of the text, we do the whole chapter, 38 verses, the first part of the text, and the back end of the text, and then read in between. It's a really incredible uh, prayer that we have here. So we're going to do that, and we're going to just soak in the prayer. We're going to read all the way through the prayer and soak in it. Then at the end, we're going to look at six quick signposts, just six things in this prayer that stand out to us, and we're going to ask two questions, and we'll be finished. So it's going to be a walk through. Uh, prayer. It's kind of an amazing uh, uh, prayer. It is the longest prayer in the entire Bible. Chapter 9, we're going to do today is the longest prayer by words and verse in the entire scriptures. Uh, it's even longer than Jesus' prayer in John 17. This, uh, this prayer covers uh, about 33 verses. It is the most comprehensive retelling of the Old Testament in the Old Testament. What we're going to do is we're going to walk through the entire Old Testament in one prayer, as was prayed by these, by these men. The word you, the pronoun you, always speaking of God, is mentioned in 33 verses. It's mentioned 30 times. So the focus is real easy to figure out. The focus is not on the wall. The focus is not on Jerusalem. The focus is really not even on the people. The focus is on the God who restores and the God who builds and the God who forgives. And we're going to look at some of those things in, in just a minute. So Turn back one page to chapter 8. Here's my hope for today. Chapter 8, verse 8, talking about the people last week. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly. That's what we're going to get a chance to do today in chapter 9. We're going to read from the book, from what God says, the entire history of him with his people, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. The word understood there means to consider diligently, or to give heed. So my prayer today is that we do what the people experienced in Nehemiah 8, verse 8, that we consider diligently and take heed to what God is saying through what I hope is a clear picture 
uh, for you today of, of the prayer itself. So uh, we're, we're really exciting place here. Let's, let's look, chapter 9. We're going to do the first half of the, the first part of the prayer. Start with verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, which by the way is about two weeks after chapter 8, so about two weeks later, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Now we know what that means, right? We know the people were in deep mourning, deep grief, all those things, fasting, uh, dust on their heads were pictures of grief. They were mourning back into their grief. Verse 2, the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Now, that separating themselves from the other people, that was not because they considered themselves to be special or better. Here's what that means. The people, by separating themselves, were saying something very important. They were saying, today, this day, in this prayer, we confess our sins. Not the sins of other people, not blaming other people, not what they did to cause us to do this, but they were separating themselves from all other people and saying to God, God, we and we alone are guilty for what has happened here. So this wasn't a, a racism thing or a separation thing. This was them saying, we don't need to talk about anybody else except for us. So they separated themselves. They stood in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. That's three hours. For another quarter of it, three more hours, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Now that's amazing. You want to talk about how a flow needs to be made? If I live my life in such a way that I spent the periods of time worshiping the Lord, reading from His work, and the next period of time doing what these people are doing, confessing my sin before Him, confessing my great need for Him. John so beautifully stated that while I go about being desperate for Him. As the deer pants after the water, Psalm 42 says. So for three hours they read from the Word, for three hours they made confession. Now verse 4, I'm being a Georgia raised, I'm not about to try to all those names. So on the stairs of the Levites stood a bunch of guys. Verse 5, then those same guys uh, said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. So that's the introduction to the prayer. The great ramp up of this prayer we're about to cover is these men, they were gathered in grief and they were saying to the Lord, we're not going to talk about anybody but us, our sin, our responsibility, our acceptance of who we have become. And they, these men say that apparently in unison, they give this great invocation to invoke prayer. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting now, what if I began every day that way? I got out of bed and I said, I'm standing up and I'm going to bless you, God, from everlasting to everlasting. You who had no beginning and you who will have no end, I bless you this day. I come to you standing on my feet in my bedroom in Walter Hill, Tennessee, and I say to the heavenlies and to you, Lord, from my heart, I bless you today because you had no beginning and you have no end. And that's who I worship and who I serve today. So what a, what a beginning of a day and what a beginning of a prayer. So verses 1 through 4, about the middle of 5, is the great beginning of the prayer. Where the people were, who they were, what they were about. Now let's turn over to verse 36 to the end of the prayer. Let's put the other bookend in place before we walk through it. Verse 36. Verse 36 says this, Behold... We are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. 
and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. Listen to these words. And we are in great distress. Here is the reason, at the end of the chapter, here is the reason for the prayer. The people come before God and they say, you have given us so much and we have done so little with it and have been in great, great sin and we are in great distress. If anything described life today in 2016, it's that. If you watched both political conventions, you know we are in great distress. And if you follow the news, you know that we are in great distress. In John's comments a while ago, we are in great distress, therefore in great need. And so the people on the front end of the prayer and the back end of the prayer are saying, God, we have a huge problem. And guess what? We send ourselves into this mess. No one else. We send ourselves into this mess, and we recognize that we are in great distress. We have, a, we, have a wor- we have a world in that way. We have lives in that way. So with those bookends, the introduction, grief and fasting and mourning, and the proclamation of the Levites, priests, and those other guys saying, stand up and behold the God. Bless the Lord who is from everlasting to everlasting. That's the great ramp up to the prayer, and then this bookend at the end that says, Lord, we send ourselves into the mess. We are in great distress. Therefore, that is why we have come to you in such a way today. Great, great distress. I cannot imagine a more applicable message, a more applicable prayer for the church of Jesus Christ in a culture in the such we live in. We are in great distress in the world today. So before we walk through the prayer, a couple of summers ago, Luke and Sheila and I went to Washington, D.C., and one of the things we did, we toured the great National Cathedral. Have any, has anyone ever been in that, that beautiful place? So we had this, uh, I think they're called docents or docents or something, little tour guides. We had a little lady who was our tour guide, and we got kind of a, a thousand-yard view of the entire cathedral. We just took in its beauty and its, and its splendor and its majesty. And as we walked through, she walked us through, and we would stop at certain places and take a look at things in particular, but we didn't stop at every single little thing. We got an idea of what the National Cathedral was about, some history and some things in it, and we just stopped along the way and looked at some things. That's the way we're going to do the tour of chapter 9. We're going to read it in its entirety. We'll make a couple of comments and some observations as we go through, and then when we finish the prayer, we'll look at those six signposts together. So let's pick it up in verse Now, the last part of verse 5. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Everybody recognize where that is in the very beginning of the the prayer where they start? They start at Genesis 1-1. In the beginning... You created all of this, and all of this worshiped at your feet, Lord. So we're going to get a scope of the Old Testament. They start at the very beginning, talking about you've made the heavens and the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. Verse 7, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur, the Chaldeans, and gave him the name Abraham. That's Genesis chapter 12. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give you his offspring, um, the 
you, uh, you found his heart faithful before you made within the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. I want you to keep track of some words. Righteous is one of them as we go through this prayer. Now, now watch. We go to the book of Exodus, verse 9. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea. Mark those two words too, verse 9. You saw and you heard and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And now if you're a Bible marker, please mark this next phrase. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. Do not forget this. Every single word of the scriptures, every single word, every act, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, the deliverance of the people from Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea was for that one purpose, and you made a name for yourself. It is for your glory, Lord, that all of these things happen. And we stand as a nation, they say in Nehemiah 9, we stand as a nation, and we look back on all that you have done, and we see you were doing one thing. You were making a name for yourself, a name above all names, as it is to this day. Nehemiah is looking back across history, and he's saying, Lord, way back, our people were, were exiles, like we are today, Nehemiah says. They were exiles. Now look all the way back across history. <clears throat> I see one thing. You were making a name <clears throat> for yourself. Verse 11. And <clears throat> you divided the sea before them, so they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. You cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. Lord, you took the Egyptian army. You threw them into that sea like it was a rock. Nothing, nothing for you to do that. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day, by the pillar of fire in the night, to light for them in the way which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai. Now we move into the next books, Deuteronomy. And spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law of Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go and to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Nehemiah, just the men cannot stop piling one thing on top of another. God's great provision to them. On and on and on he goes. You did this, you did this, you did this, you did this, you did this. Verse 16, but, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Lord, after all of that, all that, they stiffened their neck, they bowed their backs, they wanted to let you know who the real boss was, and it was them. And watch, watch, watch what happens in response to that. Even, um, verse 19, you, I'm sorry, uh, but you are a God ready to forgive. Back in verse 17. Ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Two, two examples already. The, the, the prayers say, Lord, you did all of these things. They turned their backs on you, stiffened their necks, but you remain faithful. Verse 18, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt, and it committed great blasphemies. Verse 19, guess what? You, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor did the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way which they should go. 
You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouths and gave them water for their thirst. You can insert in verse 21 the word in fact. In fact, 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. So he just continues to say, it's over and over, Lord. You just kept on going. You kept on going. You kept on going with faithfulness. They, our forefathers, kept on sinning, kept on turning their backs on you, and you kept on pouring out grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Happened over and over again. Verse 22, we move to the book of Joshua. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued them before the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand and with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns or wells already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness." Again, in the prayer, they're going on and on. God, you did this and this and this and this. Verse 26, nevertheless, fancy word for but, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. That word, they, they uh, threw the law behind their back is a picture. You know how a little kid, a little bitty kid will cover their eyes and say, you can't see me. <laughs> that little game they play, that's what they were doing. They thought in their craziness, their rebellion, if they just hid God's law, that he wouldn't notice they were breaking it. It's crazy denial. It's crazy hit what they got. They, I want to do my own thing in my own way so much, I'll cover my eyes and tell you, you can't see me, God. They're behind the back. Therefore, verse 27, you gave them into the hands of their enemies who made them suffer and at the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven, and according to your great mercies, there's that word again, mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet, when they turned and cried to you, you heard them from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. That's the book of Judges. The cycle over and over and over again. The people sin. God punishes them, they cry out for deliverance, God delivers them over and over and over. Verse 29, you warn them in order to turn, to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. That's a kind of a picture of folding their arms and poking out their lips and running off to the corner. That's what that amounts to. We pouted. They in self-pity, they went off into isolation. They hated you for being so good and telling them what to do, essentially. Verse 30, many years, many years, you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Verse 31, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. There it is again. Gracious and merciful, over and over. Verse 32, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you, 
that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully. Watch the opposite. You have dealt faithfully. We have acted wickedly. You've been faithful. We've been wicked. Same thing over and over. 34. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. And then verses 36 and 37 that we read, you've given us all of this. Yet because of our own sin, we are where we are and we are in great distress. And then verse 38, because of all this, we make a firm covenant writing on the sealed document or the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Todd will pick up there next week. That really hooks into chapter 10. So here we are. The people who've been praying, these men who've been praying, have taken the people through their memory of all of their history, starting literally from the very first thing we're told. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From that beginning, all the way through their history, all the way through what we call the Old Testament, even into the prophets. They killed the prophets that came to them. So, this big landscape of all of their history. And we see some patterns that emerge in all of that prayer. So we're going to look at six signposts. These are six things we're going to look at briefly to kind of pay close attention to this prayer. We'll give you six headings. The first heading, God is sufficient. Go back to that verse 6 with a where the prayer starts. And it said, God, you, uh, you have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all the hosts, the earth and all that's on it, the sea and all that is them, and you preserve all of them. Now, I'm so glad to be able to tell you all this because it sounds so smart. Let me tell you what I did. I googled how big is the universe. I ended up on a website called the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. I assure you, I've never been there before. I will not go there again. But it sure does sound kind of, you know, heady, kind of academic. You know what they said? Here's how the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics said, this is how big the universe is. You know what they said? We don't know. We just simply don't know. Because every time we think we know, guess what? We find something else. It's just always expanding. And so the God who made this universe, that I mean, if Harvard-Smithsonian can't find it, it can't be found, right? I mean, that, that, that's the big boys. They can't find it. This big, long thing about billions and all kinds of stuff going on and all these scientific words, they literally at the very end of that par- those paragraphs said, frankly, we don't know. <laughs> I have no idea how big this thing is. It just goes on and on and on. And so Nehemiah starts right here saying, the God that created all of this, that in the future the, the, the folks at Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics are going to write a bunch of paragraphs at the end of it, they're going to say, I don't know. This gigantic, it's too big, too big to measure. This is the God we're talking about in sufficiency. Further down in uh, verse 6, in the host of heaven worships you. When you see the phrase in the Old Testament, host of heaven, you know what that word means? It means army. So the prayer, these men praying are saying, guess what? You have made this entire universe that no one will ever be able to measure. And the armies of heaven fall down and worship you. We think about our military and the men and women that serve in that military, elite forces, Navy SEALs and Army Rangers and all these uh, incredible men and women who fight. And I am so grateful for that service. And to think about all the armies of the universe, of, of, the, of, the, uh, of Earth, Earth, combine all the armies of Earth 
and they cower and are destroyed at a word by the armies of heaven. And that, those armies of heaven bow before God and say, it's you. And so, look, if God is that sufficient, if he's made a universe that can't be measured, and he is the God who the armies of heaven fall down and worship, I think he can handle our great distress. I think he is sufficient to answer every need that arises in my life. So God is sufficient. Secondly, God cares. God is sufficient. God cares. Back to verse 9. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. You know what one of the most devastating things is to a child? One of the most devastating things there is to a child is for the child to cry out and no one to answer. For a child to grow up in a place to where he or she is neither seen nor heard, is not attended to. Uh, Todd and I work every single day with some of the most intelligent, high-functioning, some of them famous people in the world. And the guys that walk in there and sit in those circles, and me and Todd, every day, the ones who have suffered the worst trauma are the men who were utterly and completely neglected. No one heard them when they cried. No one came to their aid when they had a need. And they grew up in a world that was absolutely, positively terrifying. Because nothing's more terrifying to a child than to, than to cry out and not be heeded, not be addressed, not be seen, not be searched for, not to be pursued. And so Nehemiah, they're making a very powerful comment here to say, look, when you cry out, Daddy is going to hear you. I have a, great, a good friend named Art Snow. He serves on the elder team with me at our church. His life verse is in Philippians, Philippians 4 or 5. It's just five simple words. The Lord is at hand. The context is on anxiety. And so Nehemiah and the prayers are saying this to the people. Listen, even at the Red Sea, backs against the proverbial wall, a sea that they were hemmed in, the armies of Pharaoh bearing down on them, the Lord was at hand. They cried out at the Red Sea, and guess what? Daddy was listening. I saw, he looks back and says, you saw the affliction and you heard their cry. Nothing speaks to the heart of a child more powerfully than having someone who cares for them to do that to them, to see their affliction and to hear their cry. It's called relationship, connection, attachment. And we are relational creatures. We are made for attachment. And the men praying here are saying, guess what? We have a God who is the ultimate in attachment. He hears you and he sees you and he comes to deliver so God's sufficient, God cares, and God is merciful. Six times, six times, uh, an average of about once every five or six verses, six times we see this word mercy. We won't read all of them. It's the last part of 17, 19, 27, 28. It's mentioned twice in verse 31. Mercies, mercies, mercies. According to your gracious mercy, but according to your mercy, nevertheless, in your mercy, you did this over and over and over. That word mercy is a beautiful word. It means compassion, and its first cousin or twin brother in Greek, the word compassion means to be moved in the guts. It says Jesus looked at the people, and they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he was moved with compassion. He had a visceral response. It made his stomach hurt. He looked at people that did not have a shepherd, and he went, oh, and his passion was poured. A passion means pain, by the way. So Jesus had pain in him about the state of the people where they were living. And the same word is here. It's Hebrew cousin. Over here is a word that, that means the same thing. By the way, originally, 
You know where the word comes from, the word compassion in Hebrew? It comes from a word. Here's the word, womb. That amazing womb, where life begins. Womb, the deepest part of where life happens is the word to describe God here as he walked these people through their history. In the deepest part of himself, what came out of God from the deepest part of that of he who is unfathomable, from the deepest parts of the unfathomable, came this thing called mercy. It's a womb. It's a word that used to describe brotherhood of the same womb, like twins, and then of motherhood, relationship. All through this prayer, the prayers are talking over and over and over, attachment, relationship, you're not alone, I'm with you, I'm your deliverer. It's almost as if God is saying, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, and I care. I know you're in great distress. I see your great distress. I hear you, and I'm here. Now, we were fortunate as a family. Luke went through a tiny, short little stage of, you know, quote-unquote, being afraid of the dark. Guess what? When he was afraid of the dark, and I came into his room, guess what I didn't have to do? I didn't have to turn on the light. I didn't have to search under the bed and out the windows and in the closet. How come? Because Daddy was there. And even though how dark it was or whatever may be lurking outside his window, Daddy was there and it was okay. He'd been seen and heard. And we are the same. We get afraid in the dark. We get afraid in our great distress. God cares with his, with his great mercy. God's sufficient, God cares, and God guides it's amazing he does not abandon us to our own best thinking. I'm grateful for that because my own best thinking is not very good. He gave him his law. He gave him a pillar of fire. He fought with them through warfare. Uh, for us, he gives us scripture. He gives us one another. He gives us our own history with him. By the way, I paid a lot of money for seminary education. I'm going to use every word I learned as often as I can. Here's one of them. Heilsgeschichte. How about that? Heilsgeschichte. Here's what it means. It's a German word that means God's history. God has a history with me as a person. God has a history with you as a person. God has a history of Powell's Chapel Baptist Church. God has a history of the United States of America and all the other places. Heilsgeschichte. That's what that is. God guides. He has a history with us. He has walked with us through that history. And this prayer is one long look, 33 verses of looking back at that following along. Please don't ask me how to spell that word. Just be impressed. I, I know it. All right. So our, our history with him, God guides, and God provides. All through the prayer, all through the prayer, we have this deliverance and manna and water and protection and energy. Feet didn't swell. Shoes didn't wear out. It's just really one long list of provision. He provides this. He provides that. He provides this. He provides that. On and on and on and on and on. They cry out, and God says, got it, made the provision already. Here's your water, here's your manna, here's your other food. You'll be healthy as you wander, all those things God provides. Number five, God stays. I had a seminary professor that challenged us. Uh, he said, find in your scriptures every incident of the phrase, I will not leave you nor forsake you, and mark it. I'm still not finished. I graduated in 1992. I'm still not through with the project. I will never leave you nor forsake you. God stays. It's a very, very rare commodity in our culture for someone to really and truly stay. Stay committed. Stay in it. Stay with it. Stay together. Stay connected. God stays. 
Lots of verses there talk about him. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's seven verses out of 33 that talk about God not leaving nor forsaking. God stays. And then God forgives, last one. That's so easy to overlook because we know, yeah, yeah, forgiveness. We hear that word all the time, but think about it for a minute. God forgives. These people are looking through the eyes of exiles, like the people in Egypt, their forebears in Egypt. They're the same thing. They're exiles, too. They've been in Babylon for 70 years, and they've been released, the king of Persia, and they've come back to their beloved city to build this wall, and, and they have been uh, walked with, with him. It's our pattern as well. We talk through the judges. We talk through history. We look through that, and I look at this history. And here's what I think. Hey, Phil, that's you too. God's richness, God's glory, God's mercies, how he cares, he's sufficient, he guides, all those things, and that's my pattern too. Provision, turning my back. Provision, turning my back. Provision, turning my back. His mercies, his mercies, his mercies. So the Old Testament, here's the problem. The Old Testament does not solve the problem that we have. Anyone happen to know the last verse of the Old Testament? Here it is. Very encouraging. Listen to this. He will turn the hearts of fathers toward their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Thank you. Good night. That's how the Old Testament ends. Real high note, isn't it? Malachi's last words, else I come and strike you with utter destruction. Done. The Old Testament doesn't answer the question. However, Jesus does. Jesus answers the question, what do we do with all this mess? What do I do with all this destruction? What do I do with the great distress? And Scripture says Jesus answers it. The Old Testament doesn't answer it, but Jesus does. We're in great distress. Jesus came to pay the ultimate price for my great distress, for my sin, for my turning my back, for my presumption, for my being stiff-necked. So we've looked at six signposts knowing that the law and sacrifice and ritual and outward compliance that, that mark the Old Testament saints will not work. It is not sufficient. Watch this. We, we talked about six signposts. He's sufficient. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He is utterly and completely sufficient. God cares. God cares to such an extent. Jesus left the glories of heaven and came to earth and took on a human body with all its limitations. He came here. He cares and he guides John 14 says, I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. God cares, and God, uh, God guides, and God provides. Ultimately, 2 Peter says, ultimately, ultimately, through Christ, I literally have everything, all I need, that pertains to life and godliness. So not only has he paid the price, Peter says he's done way more than that. He's paid the price for eternity, and that I live here on this earth in my great distress. He has given me all I need that pertains to real living and godliness, everything. Then he stays. Remember the Great Commission? And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And there's a day coming, there's going to be a great meal. Even better than Baptist potluck, hard to believe. Even better than that, called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Even to that extent, Jesus says, oh yeah, I'm going to stay because I'm from everlasting to everlasting, remember? I'm from everlasting to everlasting. I'm going to stay. I can't do anything but stay. There's a day coming when this ends, but we don't end. 
He stays, and he stays, and he stays, and then he forgives, faithful and just to forgive. Last thing, what these people have done is they have experienced a thing that we call providence. Word providence. Providence means that, that God knows all. God has made everything come together. It's a beautiful word. You may know that the prefix pro means before, like to be proactive, act before something happens, pro. And the, word, the rest of that word providence is video. We get our word video. So it means to see before. God has seen before. But guess what? It's like driving through in the morning when you get up and it's a winter time. Your car's been parked outside. you got that ice on top of it. I can't see through the windshield for anything. Bugs get all over it sometimes. I can't see anything through that windshield. But I can see through the rearview mirror. And so these people are saying, hey, we're looking in the rearview mirror because in my life, the rearview mirror is far clearer than the windshield. He's got the windshield. He's got the future. And I can see his faithfulness by, by looking in, in the rearview mirror to go back. As I pray, I need, to, I need the defroster of prayer and memory of his history with me in order to be able to see clearly. We see clearly, more clearly from the past than we do the future. And God says, I'm these six things and more as outlined in this prayer, and I've got that. I went into a uh, writing. We'll, we'll end with this before we ask the two questions. This is called a Kenyan liturgy. It's something common in the Kenyan church. Here's what it says. Think about what we've, gone, what we've walked through today. Think about this prayer. And this is a Kenyan liturgy as they begin their worship service. Here's what they pray. It is right and our delight to give you thanks and praise, Holy Father, living God, supreme over the world, creator, provider, savior, and giver. From a wandering nomad, you created your family in Abraham. For a burdened people, you raised up a leader named Moses. For a confused nation, you chose a king, David. For a rebellious crowd, you sent your prophets. In these last days, you have sent us your son, your perfect image, bringing your kingdom, revealing your will, dying, rising, reigning, remaking your people for yourself. Through him, you have poured out your Holy Spirit, filling us with light and life. The Kenyan church gathers, and they look in the rearview mirror, and they say, we had a need, and you supplied it before we even knew we had it. You have been faithful. And so that's what Nehemiah has walked us through today, this beautiful, majestic chapter 9, where the entire history of God's faithfulness and our great need is laid out right before us like a, like a buffet table. So two questions, we're, we're done. Two questions. The first question is, so what? Okay, so what? What do we do as a people leaving here today having heard of God's faithfulness and apply it to our own lives? So what? Second question is this, what is your chapter 9? As you look in the rearview mirror of your life, as you look in the rearview mirror of Powell's Chapel Baptist Church, what do you see? And if you're looking through these lens, you're going to see God's faithfulness. You're going to see these six signposts and about probably 6,000 more. You're going to see these six signposts of his care and his sufficiency and his guidance and his provision and how he stays and how he forgives. So as we close in prayer today, Let's have those two things in mind. If you have a need this morning for, for someone to pray with you, if you made a decision to join this great fellowship here, if you just need to, to come and have someone pray, I'll be down front as John leads us in a closing hymn. So let me pray, and John will come um, lead us through the last song. Lord, we're grateful today for your great faithfulness. We're grateful for your provision. 
all that you are, all that you've done, more, more and more than we could ever be nor hope for. We're grateful for that today. So I pray that we will leave this place uh, not just educated, we'll leave this place not just informed, but we would leave this place with a great recognition that you are faithful and you are sufficient and you meet all of our needs. Your guidance is always with us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.